Our scripture focus is found in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 16. When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul made him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men, which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well. As the troops were coming back when David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines, with shouts of joy, and with three-stringed instruments. As they danced, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. The next day, an evil spirit sent from God came powerfully upon Saul, and he began to rave inside the palace. David was playing the lyre as usual, but Saul was holding a spear, and he threw it, thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David got away from him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David and had left Saul. Therefore, David, or Saul sent David away from him and made him commander over a thousand men. David led the troops and continued to be successful in all his activities because the Lord was with him. When Saul observed that David was very successful, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was leading their troops. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, now please be seated. All right, good morning, Hallows Church. It's been a long, long time. It's been too long. I was counting it up this morning, and we haven't gathered together in this space in this way for this reason in over 15 months. And so thank you for coming out. Uh, thank you for your endurance. Thank you for your commitment to our church. Um, if you're tuning in online, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're tuning in this way. But for those of you here with us, I'm so happy to see you. I miss you very much. I love you very much. And I look forward to more of this moving forward into the future by God's grace. But for now, open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 18, if you want to track along the passage we just heard read a moment ago. Now, most of you, I think, are probably familiar with the, the famous uh, 18th century musical composer Mozart. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart is his full name, and he was and is considered to be one of the greatest composers of all time. And I'm sure many of you are also familiar with the, the play and the movie uh, that loosely are based upon his life called Amadeus. And if you've seen it, it's quite an interesting story, and it's indeed a story about Mozart in every way, but uh, it's also a story about another man, about another man's life too, and that man's name was Antonio Salieri. And so it's a story about how these two men's lives, they uh, intersected in uh, some very significant ways, and in ways that would change both of their lives forever. You see, Salieri was a musician, too. He was a very gifted composer, too. And Salieri, 
uh, had worked extremely hard at his craft, and as he did, his career really took off. In fact, in 1774, he became the court composer for Joseph II, who was the uh, Roman emperor of Austria in the city of Vienna at that time. And the story does make clear that Salieri was uh, something of a religious man. In fact, throughout much of his life, Salieri had prayed to God and had asked God really to, to gift him and to, and to lift him to great heights to be uh, successful in the music that he was pursuing. And Salieri had made a, a bit of a deal with God, too, or so he thought. He would, he would pray to God. He would pray, make me famous Make me famous through my music, and in return, I will serve you, and I will glorify you through my music. And at least for a little while, that's exactly what seems to be happening with him. But then everything changed for Salieri when this young up-and-comer Mozart showed up in Vienna. Mozart shows up, and he begins dazzling crowds with both his music and his personality. People could not get enough of him, both on and off the stage. And so it didn't take long before Mozart was on everybody's radar. He was quickly becoming the center of attention in the musical scene uh, in Vienna at that time. And as you might imagine, this was all uh, somewhat challenging for Salieri, right? And, and, and what made matters even worse for Salieri is that Mozart, he was really kind, kind of a, a, a jerk, really. He was immature. He was crude. He was, you might say, very... Uh, worldly in many of his pursuits, and yet his popularity and his success and his music continued to take off. And it was all becoming too much for, for Salieri. Salieri was gifted, but he was not gifted like Mozart was gifted. And Salieri, over time, as this story plays out, he came to resent very much what was happening. He came to resent Mozart, and he came to resent God because... This was not how his life was supposed to go. This was not how his life was supposed to be, right? It wasn't, it wasn't fair. He was a servant of God, after all. Or at least he would tell himself that. And it reached a point where Salieri called God out about all of this. Listen to what he says to God. He says, from now on, we are enemies, you and I, because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lusty, smutty, infantile boy, and give me for my reward only the ability, ability to recognize the incarnation, the incarnation referring to Mozart. Because you are unjust, unfair, and unkind, I will block you. I will hinder and harm your creature on this earth. As far as I am able, I will, I will ruin your incarnation, Salieri said to God. And the story continues on this same sort of uh, tragic trajectory for Salieri until Mozart dies a mysterious death in 1791. And Salieri, over time, he, the, he becomes delusional, really. And along the way, he, he confesses to poisoning Mozart. And then in the final scene of this story, you see Salieri locked up in an, in an, an insane asylum cursing God for the way that his life had gone. The title of today's message is The Cost of Comparison, and the theme of today's message is envy. And this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 18 has much to teach us about this, I think. In today's passage, we're going to draw three things out of it. Um, we're going to talk about the... Um, 
Sorry, we're going to talk. <laughs> Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Today's message is, uh, and the theme of today's message is envy, and in this passage it has much to teach us. In today's passage we're going to see this very gifted and powerful man, King Saul, allowing envy in every way to get the better of him and to begin to, to really take him down. And so envy, what, what is envy anyways? The basic essence of envy, I think, is is wanting something that's not yours, right? Wanting something that others have, wanting it for yourself, and even, even wishing that other person did not have it at all. Envy is looking out and looking around in your life, in the news, on uh, social media, and seeing what others do, what others have, how others look, what others earn, and wanting very badly what they have to be yours. Taking things a bit deeper, for some, envy has a lot to do with what you may think people uh, deserve. Sometimes envy is looking around and thinking others are getting far more than they deserve in, in their lives and thinking that you deserve far more than you're getting in yours. And so does this sound familiar at all to you? Do you, do you experience this? How do you experience this? How do you get beyond this? And so let's talk about this. Let's see what we can learn from this passage. We're going to draw out three things. We're going to talk about the signs of envy. We're going to talk about the seriousness seriousness of envy. And we'll talk about the solution to envy. First, the signs of envy. Now, you heard the passage read a moment ago, right? You may have picked up on some of these these signs. The first sign of envy that you see in this passage is, is comparison, You find King Saul comparing himself and comparing his situation to David. And so comparison is really uh, where it all begins. Envy has the opportunity to take root in the human heart when you and I look out at those around us and we we begin to compare and contrast. We begin to ask questions, right? How am I, how am I measuring up? Am I measuring up? Now, it is important for us to stay connected to last week's passage. Remember, remember what happened last week leading up to today's passage. This young shepherd, David, did uh, the unimaginable, really. Single-handedly, David defeated an enemy of God's people who everybody thought was undefeatable. David, the shepherd, took down Goliath, the giant. He delivered God's people in the process, and he became a national hero virtually overnight. And he became a national hero. And so there was much to celebrate for the people of Israel. And here in this passage, we get to see some of the celebration that was happening, right? As Saul and David and the armies were returning to Israel. And it does sound like quite a celebration, right? In verse 6, you heard it. It says, the women came out from all the cities, singing and dancing with tambourines, with shouts of joy. And get this, verse 7, they were singing a song about Saul and David, right? And the song said this. It said, Saul has killed thousands. But David, David, tens of thousands, and most definitely Saul in his own mind was now comparing Saul to David too as he heard this song. And you really see that coming out in verse 8 where Saul complains. He begins complaining about this. He complained, they credit David with tens of thousands, but they only credit me with thousands, he says. And so it begins with comparison, right? That's the first sign of envy we see here. And then in the very next verse, uh, you see the second sign of envy coming. Saul resented this song, it says. And so the second sign you see here is, 
is resentment and anger for the comparisons that were being, coming out of the comparisons that were being made. And so that didn't seem to take very long at all, did it? Everyone else is singing and celebrating. And Saul, it says, was angry over what he was seeing and hearing. And so as envy begins to uh, take root here, you see certain emotions flaring up quite quickly. And these emotions for Saul and, and for some of us too can be difficult to control in some cases. And what we see as the story unfolds is that Saul not only feels anger and resentment over this song, but Saul also feels anger and resentment toward David and toward, toward David's success. And so it's not simply comparison then that makes up envy. There's more to it. You don't just look at what others have. You don't just see what they have. You're upset about what they have. You resent what they have, and you resent them for having it. Saul could have been celebrating David's success too, right, along with everybody else. But instead, he was upset, and he was complaining. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 reminds us as Christians that we are to be a people who uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and who weep with those who weep. And so a loving response toward those around us is to rejoice when people have reason to rejoice and to weep with those who have reason to weep. But envy, envy is, is like the opposite of that, right? Right? With envy, in many cases, you have a person weeping while others are rejoicing, or you have a person rejoicing while others are weeping. With envy, you have a person who is sorry when others are happy and happy when others are sorry. It's, it's like the opposite. And this is why some people secretly celebrate when you uh, see in the news a story about someone powerful or beautiful or rich falling down, um, getting knocked down off their high perch in life. Many eyes want to read those stories. Everybody knows those stories are going to sell. Why? Because of this dynamic of envy and resentment, this dynamic of not only being sorry when others are happy, but also being happy when others are sorry. And so envy, it starts as comparison, but that's not enough to make it envy. Envy starts there, but then that comparison can and often does lead to uh, certain emotions like anger and resentment and others. And then a third sign of envy that you see in this passage is desire. Not only do we compare our lives to others' lives, not only do we resent and begrudge them for what they have, but we want very badly for what, uh, what they have to be, to be what we have. And so the next layer of envy here is, is not being content with what you have, not being satisfied with what you have, but wanting what they have, wishing you had their looks, wishing you had their friends, wishing you had their income, wishing you had their spouse, wishing you had their life. And you see this kind of coming out in verse 9 when it says this. It says, so Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. Some translations say that Saul eyed David jealously. He eyed him. And quite literally in the Greek, it says that from that day forward, Saul looked at David. He looked at him through jealousy. That's the literal translation. It's like he put on jealousy and, and looked at David through it all the time from that day forward. And even though Saul was king and even though Saul had been given so much, his focus became not on who he was or 
what he had, but on who David was and what David had and how he wanted what David had for himself. He was, he was no longer happy with what he had. And so David eyed, David eyed Saul through jealousy from that day forward. And, and this is really the beginning of the end for Saul. And so those, those are some of the signs of envy that we see in this passage. But let's talk now about uh, the seriousness of envy. We talked some about what envy is. Let's talk, too, a bit about what envy does. First of all, one of the reasons that we need to take envy seriously is because the Bible takes envy seriously. We see it here in this passage, of course, but can you think of any other parts of the Bible in the Scriptures where you find envy uh, doing damage? There are many. The truth is you find envy... Uh, simmering under the surface of some of the most significant events recorded in the scriptures. And so let me just give you a couple of examples. Think about this. How did sin enter into the human condition and into the human heart? Why did Adam and Eve decide to eat of that tree? Well, because they looked around and they were tempted into, into wanting something that was not theirs. The serpent said, look over there. That's what you really want. That's what you really need, God. And God knows it. Adam and Eve were tempted to believe that God was holding out on them, and so they wanted what was not theirs to have, and they took what was not theirs to take. And speaking of the serpent, do you know how Satan got to be Satan? The Bible doesn't say much about this, but something that it does say and something that does seem clear is that Satan envied God. He envied God and his, and his glory. God had given him much, but it wasn't enough. He wanted more of what God had. He envied God's glory and decided to go after what was not his to go after. And think about the first murder that is recorded in the Scriptures, Genesis chapter 4. Cain kills his brother Abel, why? Because Cain envied the relationship that Abel, that his brother Abel had with, with God, and he, and he killed his brother for it. But also, did you know that one of the reasons Jesus was put to death was, was envy? Listen to Mark chapter 15, verse 10. It says it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to be crucified. And so, friends, if envy has already fractured the universe in these many ways, let us not underestimate what it can do in our own hearts. And I'm not saying we will all experience envy in extreme forms in our lives on any regular basis, but we do all experience this emotion in one way or another at different times and in different ways, sometimes subtly, sometimes Strongly, but whether subtly or strongly, this is a dangerous emotion that we must approach carefully. And so we do need to take this seriously. Yes, because the Bible takes this seriously, but we also need to take this seriously too because uh, we live in a time and we live in a place where we have more opportunity to compare and contrast, to see what others have and what they don't have and to want what others have than at any point in human history. Did you know last week, Facebook and Instagram 
they announced that they would begin offering users the option of not seeing who liked what and who liked what how many times. They're going to now be giving people the option of hiding the like counts on their own profile and on the profiles that they follow. And so why, why would they decide to do that? Well, they tell us why, and here's what they tell us. They say the idea to hide like counts is focused on depressurizing the experience for some users. Often users face anxiety and embarrassment around their posts, they said, if they don't receive enough likes to be considered popular. This problem is particularly difficult for younger users who highly, highly value what peers think of them, so much so that they would take down posts that didn't receive enough likes, they said. And so they needed, they felt the need, they feel the need to um, depressurize the experience of social comparison on their platforms. And the reason why is because they know, they know how unhealthy these platforms can be for some. Friends, we cannot help but measure ourselves against one another. It's a fundamental human impulse. It is a modus operandi of the human mind. This has always been the case. And so if it's not clear already, let's be uh, clear about something. The question is not if you compare yourself to others. The question is how much you do it and how, mu- and how you deal with what you see when you do. But things are different for us now than in the past. Social media, media has very much become a turbocharged instrument for social comparison, unlike anything we've ever seen. In a recent article in the magazine Psychology Today entitled The Comparison Trap, the author said this about social media. Part of its uniqueness, researchers point out, is that it paints a heavily skewed picture of one's social universe. People are most likely to share peak experiences and flattering news about themselves. They're highlight reel, so to speak. And tech companies furthermore use algorithms to prioritize that very information in social media feeds. The narrow, distorted slice of reality that is displayed on social media is almost perfectly constructed to make viewers feel deficient and discouraged. Social media is like kerosene poured on the flame of social comparison, dramatically increasing the information about people that we're exposed to and forcing our minds to assess. And so I'd I'd like to ask you today, how does this come into play in your own life? Who are you most likely to compare yourself with and why? Do you ever think about it? Do you ever process it? How do you you deal with, with what you see? Because we need, to, we need to deal with what we see. And that's true whether what you see makes you feel good about yourself or whether it makes you feel bad about yourself. Because it can go both ways, to be sure. And I'd like to be honest with you for a moment. I want to share a couple of examples with you of this in my own life. One is kind of silly, but the other is kind of serious. First, the silly one. I don't really post much on social media much, uh, these days, but I do look at Facebook pretty regularly, mostly because I've, because I've taken up fishing. There are a lot of fishing groups and fishing sites that I follow where people post a lot of different things about fishing. 
And the reason I like to look at these sites is because when COVID happened, when COVID hit, I decided to buy a boat and I decided to get out and learn how to fish. I've, I had never really done much of that at all. But to be honest with you, it hasn't been going so well. I thought I had an inside track to all the secret fishing spots and fishing techniques through our own Tom Hartman here. He's been doing this for years. He has many fish stories to tell. But to be honest, Tom has not really been coming through with the goods. <laughs> we haven't been doing so well lately, have we, Tom? And so after yet another day out fishing with Tom and coming home empty-handed, I open my Facebook feed, and what do I see? I see all sorts of pictures of all sorts of people catching very big and beautiful fish, often in some of the same places that we had just been fishing. And as I look at all those pictures, I can't help but compare myself and my situation to what I'm seeing, right? It makes me want what they have, and it, and it makes me feel very sad inside about my own fishing abilities. And it makes me feel very sad even more so about, about Tom's fishing abilities. <laughs> but then on a bit more serious note, and this has nothing to do with social media, but it does have something to do with uh, social comparison, and indeed, often, some of the most challenging comparisons that you and I will make with those around us will be with our own peers that we are close to. I haven't, I haven't done this uh, in a long, long time. I haven't taught from the Bible in this way in a long time, well over a year. And to be honest with you, part of me has, uh, has been okay with that. And the reason I say that is because I have always struggled and stressed to, 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 to do this, to step into this space and to speak with you um, in this way. It is not natural for me. It is not comfortable for me. It is not what I necessarily um, want to be doing. But at times, I've sensed God asking me to do what I am not comfortable doing, and I do, I do want to be faithful to him. But a very big reason why I've struggled doing this at our church in particular, at the Hallows Church, is because of our pastor, Pastor Andrew, who I do uh, love like a brother, but who I can't help at times compare myself to. Pastor Andrew is a remarkably gifted communicator and a remarkably gifted teacher of the Bible. And so it's not easy to get up here after him and to teach in this way after he gets up here and teaches in his way. And so it's been a struggle for me at times as I compare and contrast myself with him and other teachers of the Bible. And I will say I was a bit reluctant to share this with you because I don't want it to sound like I'm looking for uh, attention or compliments. I'm just being honest with some of the struggles that I've faced in this, in this area. And so I've had to process these things. I've had to work through these things. I've had to get past these things, and I still am, but it's a it's a challenge because of the comparisons, the comparisons that my mind wants to, wants to make. And so there you go, one a bit silly, one a bit more serious, but I think you know what I'm saying. This dynamic of social comparison, this emotion of envy can and will intersect uh, in our lives in significant ways that we must be aware of and that we must be willing to work through. Okay, let's talk now about some of the effects of envy that we see in this passage. We talked about what it is. Let's talk about what envy does. And first, envy distorts. It is distorting. And so, so what do I mean by that? Well, simply put, envy keeps you from seeing things clearly. It clouds your perspective and your judgment. It makes you look at things and not see things as they really are. 
Think about this. The more that you focus on what others have and what you don't have, the more you lose, lose sight of what, of what you do have. Your, your perspective begins to change. It gets uh, distorted. And what you find, if you're not careful, is that instead of counting your own blessings and, and thanking God for them, you're instead counting the blessings of others and forgetting, forgetting all about your own. And so do you ever do that? It's a natural tendency of ours, I think. The grass is always greener, right? Saul had much. Saul had received much. He had more wealth and power than anyone around him at that time, and he could have, um, he could have been secure in that, right? He could have been grateful for that. And he, could have, he could have honored David humbly for what David had done for his people, but instead he didn't. He he wasn't seeing things clearly at all. His perspective was distorted by the comparisons that he was making and the envy that he was feeling and fostering. And the more he focused on David's victory and David's blessings and David's success, the less he was able to remember his own. But not only do you see how envy distorts, you also see various ways that envy deceives here. It prevents you from not only seeing straight, but it also prevents you from thinking straight. In James chapter 3, we saw it earlier up on the screen. In James chapter 3, the author begins talking about envy and wisdom, and he's contrasting them, really. He's setting one against the other. And he says, basically, watch out for envy. For where there is envy, there is no truth. There's no truth in envy. He actually calls it demonic. Avoid envy, James says. Instead, seek the wisdom that comes down from above. So don't envy. There's no truth there. There's only deception there. Instead, seek godly wisdom from above. In other words, what James seems to be saying here is that envy is inconsistent with wisdom. Envy is like the opposite of wisdom. It's like a cancer to wisdom, and as a result, envy destroys your ability to, to be wise and to think straight. And one of the primary ways that envy deceives you is that envy deceives you into making, into making everything about you. It deceives you into making everybody else's situation really all about your situation. And so whatever is happening to other people, you find a way to make it all about you when it's really not all about you at all. And so do you know what I'm saying? Do you know other people that might do this? Do you, do you ever find yourself doing this? That's what Saul is doing here. He couldn't be happy with the honor uh, David was getting because whatever was happening to David, Saul took it and he made it about himself. Now think about this. Envy can take different forms. For example, you could envy uh, another person because that person has something that you don't have, but something that you really want. Or, or you could envy another person because that person has exactly the same thing as you, but in your mind, they don't, they don't deserve it in the same way that you do. And so we already said envy looks out and compares. Look at that person's success. Look at that person's career. Look at their beauty. And you resent that person and you resent what they have. But do you know why you resent them? Where does that resentment come from? In many cases, quite often, that resentment comes because you think that person doesn't really deserve what they have. Let's say you want to make partner at your firm, but you're not. Your friend just made partner at her firm, and she's five years younger than you. 
That's not fair, right? You say, I deserve, I deserve that as much as she does. I deserve that more than she does. Why am I down here and she's up there? And you find yourself unable to rejoice with those who rejoice because you're making their situation all about your situation and you're saying, I deserve, I deserve better than I'm getting. And because envy has deceived you in this way, you really lose the ability to uh, enjoy what others are enjoying, what they are enjoying. You can't be happy that they're happy because you make it all about you. It's in fact a terrible terrible way to live. It's a very self-absorbed way to live. And before you know it, you begin to look at your life and say, I deserve better than I'm getting. I've worked very hard. I've tried very hard. My parents are unfair. My boss is unfair. God is unfair. The system is unfair. I should be higher. I deserve to be higher. But honestly, friends, what, what do any of us really deserve? And who are we as Christians to decide, to decide those things? If you read the scriptures carefully, then you know what it says about what, about what you deserve and about what I deserve and how in the gospel you and I don't get at all what we deserve. In fact, we get the opposite of what we deserve. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But finally, envy not only distorts, it not only deceives, but if you're not careful, envy will destroy Envy has the potential to be incredibly destructive. This scene that we've been talking about is the beginning of the end for Saul, and we'll see this play out in the coming weeks, but Saul never really gets beyond this, this episode of envy here. It will continue to deceive him, and it will begin to destroy him. And here's how all of this can become so destructive. What Saul does here is he... He makes his kingship, his own kingship, and his own earthly kingdom more important than God's kingship and God's kingdom. And whenever you do that, whenever you put anything else in place of God, whenever you make anything more important than God, destruction is sure to follow. It's important to remember Saul was not always this way, too. He was a very reluctant leader in the beginning, you may remember from 1 Samuel chapter 10. And he started, he began everything in pretty sincere service to God and to God's kingdom, but that changed, didn't it? Over time, as Saul gained power and wealth and authority, these things changed Saul just as they can change us if we're not careful. And you can see the destruction caused by all of this coming out in verses 10 and 11. First, you uh, first of all, you see a spiritual component here. You see that Saul is again falling under the influence of demonic powers. In verse 10, it says, The next day an evil spirit came powerfully on Saul, and he began, to, he began to rave inside the palace, it says. He began to rave. It says he picked up a weapon, a spear, and he tried to kill David with it twice. In the beginning, Saul was uh, enough in control of himself to know that if he was to go after David directly, he would lose his kingship. But by the end, he's losing control quickly. Saul is acting violently and irrationally. He's raving. He's throwing uh, spears. And that's how important, that's how important his own kingship had become to him. And that's how far he was willing to go to protect it. 
And when you make anything that important to you, anything you make more important than God becomes, becomes like a drug. It becomes like crack or heroin. And if there's, anything, if there's one thing that a powerful drug, drug does is, it, is that it eventually destroys and deceives the one who is taking it. Saul made his kingship the most important thing to him, more important than God himself. And to him, more important than God himself. You see here and in the chapters that follow how that's going to go for him, and it's not going to go well at all. And we talked earlier about Cain murdering his, his brother Abel, right? What we didn't talk about is that there's a remarkable scene that comes before that. God comes to Cain ahead of time and counsels him, and he uses a very fascinating uh, metaphor about the power of sin. God says, if you do not do what is right, Cain, sin, sin is crouching at your door. It desires, its desire is to have you, but you must master it. And so sin is crouching, crouching at your door, God says. Yes, God is God is likening sin to a predatory animal who crouches down to hide, but is, is ready to spring into action, ready to ravage you, ready to destroy your life. With Saul, of course, we're talking about envy, but God here is talking about all sin, really, and he's saying, be very, very careful. The more you entertain sin, the more you dabble and engage in sin, the more power you're giving to it to become a destructive force in your life. In the beginning, you may do anger and you may do envy, but in the end, anger and envy will be doing you. Saul envied, Saul raved, Saul has lost control of everything. And so what do we do about all this then? This passage has shown us something about the signs of envy and something, uh, too, about the seriousness of, of envy, but, but fortunately, it also gives us some answers. It also has something to teach us, I think, about about the solution to envy. Now, we've been talking a lot about Saul, but there's another person in today's passage who we haven't talked about yet, and that's Jonathan, King Saul's son. King Saul's son and the rightful heir to King Saul's throne. And let's look at what, it's, look at what we're told about Jonathan in the opening verse. Verse 1, it says, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Verses 3 and 4, it says, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. And so this is quite a contrast. What Jonathan does here is radical. He takes off his robe, his armor, his sword, and he lays them down. He gives them to David. And the robe, in every way, was his royal robe. It was basically a symbol of his kingship. He was the heir to the throne. He was basically taking off his crown here, his very right to his father's throne, and he's, he's handing it to David. And so this is very interesting. The author here is deliberately putting in front of us not, not one person, but two, two people, not just Saul, but Saul and Jonathan. And these two people have been seeing the very same things that we've been seeing, right, happening to David, but we have here two people who are going to respond in two uh, completely different ways to what they are seeing. Both of these men can see that God has anointed David, 
Everyone is beginning to see that. They can both see that God is making David the future leader of Israel. They can both see, as it says in this passage, that, that God was now with David, but that God had now, had now left Saul. And so they're seeing the same things. They both have a lot to lose. In fact, if anything, Jonathan has more to lose than Saul, right? Because he's never been king yet, and he was next in line. And so if anybody has what you might say, uh, a, a warrant for envy, if there is such a thing, it would be Jonathan. But that's, that's not what happens. Instead, what you see is Saul picking up his weapon to fight while Jonathan lays his weapon down in surrender. What you see is Saul choosing to oppose God's will and Jonathan choosing to submit to God's will in spite of what that meant for his, for his future. Two completely different responses. Jonathan was not simply saying to David, okay, I will let you be king. He was saying to David, I am willingly and I will willingly submit to you. I am submitting to you and I will serve you as my king. Jonathan could have acted like his dad. He could have said, who is this David? He doesn't deserve all this. I deserve all this. But, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he lays down, lays down his crown. He lays down his sword and he says, I submit to you. I will follow you. He says to David, I want you to lead me. And so it's pretty stunning, really. It's pretty stunning. It's stunning because Jonathan was a much older and more experienced leader than David, first of all. But it's stunning, too, because in the ancient Near East, if you were the heir to the throne and a rival to your throne would come along, you certainly wouldn't put your sword in, in their hand. No, you'd, put the, you'd put, in fact, put your sword through their, through their heart. In Jonathan, what you see here is a humble response, a humble response of faith. It's a response of faith, faith, to what he's seeing and sensing God doing all around him. Jonathan is looking at David and saying this. He's saying, I perceive that God's salvation is coming to our people through you. I perceive that God is choosing to work through you, and I want to be a part of that, even if it means that I must surrender everything that is mine. One thing that Jonathan shows us here, he reminds us, I think, of the freedom that is to be found when you stop resisting God's will in your life and when you instead align yourself with God's will. Jonathan somehow, some way, knew that the only way he could get God's um, salvation in his life is if he laid down his sword and got off his throne and trusted God with his life, even if it meant giving up much and allowing David to take the lead ahead of him. And do you know what? That's true of every single one of us in this room. Friends, you've got to be willing to lay down your sword at times. And trust God with your life, even when your life is not going the way you planned or hoped or, or intended, even when it seems that others are getting ahead and you, you are not. There is incredible freedom to be found, in fact, in laying down the sword and surrendering your claim to the kingship of your own life. Saul refuses to do it, and he pays the price for it, but Jonathan shows us the way. He understands this, and he surrenders to what he sense that God was doing in him and what God was doing around him. 
So two men and two very different responses. And so how do we deal with envy in our lives? The answer in part is by looking to Jonathan, but the way that we conquer envy in our lives even more so is not only by looking to Jonathan, but by looking beyond Jonathan and allowing Jonathan to point us to Jesus. That's where the ultimate solution to all this lies. Because if there's one thing that our Jesus loves, it is seeing people get what they do not deserve. He actually says this much in John chapter 17. After living a perfect life that you and I could not live and ultimately dying a death that you and I deserve, what does Jesus say? He says, he says Father in heaven, I want them to have what they don't deserve. I want them to have what I deserve. And so it's the opposite of envy. Jesus does not begrudge us or resent us for sharing his throne uh, with him. He says, I have achieved all this, Father, and now I want them to have what I deserve. Friends, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, absolutely loves to see people like you and I getting what we do not deserve. It was for it was for that joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. And when you see this, when you savor this, the gospel really crushes any notion of I deserve this or I deserve that. No, the gospel reminds us that we are recipients of grace and we need to uh, approach others and treat others the way that God in Christ has, has treated us. That's why you're a Christian. That's why I'm a Christian because Jesus Christ Rejoiced to see you and I get what he and he alone deserves. And so how can you be envious of anyone else when you know what you have as a Christian and when you know how you got it? That's how we deal with envy. That's how, that's how we get beyond envy. The gospel severs envy at its very root by reminding you and I of the unenviousness of our God in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We celebrate you today. Would you um, give us grace today? Thank you, God, for your scriptures. Thank you for this passage. Would you use what we've talked about today to encourage us, to challenge us, and to change us? God, thank you that you delight in giving us what we do not deserve. Would we never lose sight of that as your children? And would that help us to deal with the difficult dynamics we face in this fallen world as we live our lives by faith, as we anticipate the world to come? God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.